I'm Strider Brown and I am here uh, visiting with John Nichols here in Taos, New Mexico on this beautiful September 4th of 2022 and uh, uh, thank you for the invitation, John. And thank you for what, being interested in coming. Sure, yes. I, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you about uh, your most recent book, I Got Mine, and I finished reading it a couple weeks ago, and it was uh, a month ago at the radio station in Gallup, uh -huh. where I work, volunteer, that the station manager handed me the book and said, really? can you read this and see if you can contact John Nichols to see if he would be interested in doing an interview. Huh. And then uh, that's uh, more or less how this came together. Yeah, I had trouble reading the book because the print was so small. Oh, that's... It was, when I first saw it, I thought, oh my God, nobody will be able to read this book because it was in 10-point type, 10-point uh, type, I believe, the size... But it turns out that lots of people are used to reading books like that. Or they have eyeglasses, you know. Yeah. Or they have binoculars. Or, yeah. Or something. Sure. So I was... At first I was in a real funk because I said, nobody will be able to read this book. It's too tiny, the print. And then I realized, oh, it is possible to read it. So I backed off of my despair. I found it to be a very uh, intriguing uh, read, and certainly uh, it being autobiographical, as you know, some of your books are. Uh, I thought it was uh, well, it's much. A, it's a memoir. Right? A memoir, okay. And it's probably what what you would call. What do they call it nowadays? Creative nonfiction. Creative nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's so. It's not an attempt to be autobiographical. Okay. Because that would take hundreds of thousands of pages. Wow. <laughs> I'm not capable of producing, but so so it is written with, um, you know, a certain amount of irreverence and humor yeah. and stuff like that. Sure. And I don't go deeply into many, many things, but I try to cover a wide range of subjects. And when the book began, it was like about 1,300-page massive uh, memoir that dealt with an abusive childhood and all kinds of stuff like that and life in prep school and my relationship to my evil stepmother and then increasingly my relationship with my father. Yeah. That grew over the years so that uh, there were hundreds of pages in that book Wow. Just about my dad and I 
uh, and him growing older and how we became closer and closer uh-huh. <clears throat> and how um, I, uh, you know, was with him when he was dying and all the conversations we had, things like that. But I had this enormous kind of manuscript that I couldn't put everything together and it just seemed like there was too much TMI, too much information. Uh-huh. And finally I, I thought, what what could give it a wholeness? What could bring it together? What could, could make it uh, sort of a viable and interesting subject? And I wound up thinking, well, maybe just the portions of how I dealt with publishing and the books I wrote Yes, and the movies that I worked on—that that—that those were were all just a part of my working life. Sure, which eliminated, you know, it eliminated sort of wives and divorces and girlfriends yeah. and travels all over the place and uh, many many crazy characters that I've met in my life. Sure, and stuff like that. So I simplified it this great big manuscript just down to a book that was about my working life. Yeah. Writing books and working on movies, which seemed to have a um, coherence together. Well, I uh, loved what I read as far as the uh, description of... uh, always writing the struggle for writing the uh, you know very prolific throughout your life but that it isn't just a stroll through the park it's uh, a lot of uh, anguish at times and publishers and it sounded like uh, although your publicist you had for 30 years the woman uh, the editor Marion Wood was very, very uh, kind. She was a wonderful editor. Yeah. She rejected half of what I gave her, rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, it's just as difficult to write a bad book as it is to write a good book. Yes. And I've written a lot of bad books. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, we'll never see the light of day. Yeah. Nor should they. Sure. But I was very lucky to have Marion Wood for an editor for about 26 or 27 years. Yeah. And, uh, but I um, started writing books when I was about 17, 16 or 17. Yeah. And all through college I wrote a couple of novels every year just for fun. Yeah. And... Uh, when I finally did publish a book, The Sterile Cuckoo, when I was only 23 years old, it was probably about the eighth or ninth novel that I'd written. Interesting. Be- before I got to a book that, that sort of functioned that I could publish. Right, and then uh, uh, Hollywood picked that manuscript up. Yeah, uh, uh producer named Alan Pakula uh, got in touch 
and wanted an option on the book. And Alan Pakula was a producer of a number of movies, including To Kill a Mockingbird. Ah. He had never directed a film. And he was just going to produce The Sterile Cuckoo. And he had a um, director, Bob Mulligan, Robert Mulligan, that shot uh, a lot of the movies he produced. And then Alan decided he wanted to direct movies. And so he turned around and decided The Sterile Cuckoo would be the first movie that he ever directed. So that's what it was. Yeah, that's a... uh a very interesting background on that and uh, I know that uh, the work surrounding Milagro Beanfield War and as far as the film being made and all that was uh, there was a lot of uh, you know again it was not uh, it wasn't like an easy birth or anything it was uh Nothing is like an easy birth. None of my books have been an easy birth. Ah. Uh, When I was young, I started just rewriting, then rewriting, then rewriting. It's like I'm not a natural-born writer. Yeah. It takes me many, many, many drafts to finally find a book it's viable and often I don't find the book and uh, it's the same deal working on films Uh, they're very difficult it's very difficult to write a good screenplay and it's it's but it's a lot of fun one of the things I've loved writing all my life and I think the first story I published, I was 11 years old. Huh. I mean, that my dad typed for me. Yeah. And uh, uh, I loved writing as much when I was a kid as I do now at age 82. Wow. And, uh, but the way I write is I don't trust genius. I don't trust inspiration. I I don't trust luck. The only thing I trust regarding writing is work. It's just, and I love doing the work. And I can write a 800-page manuscript, first draft, uh, in a month. And then I can chop it. Three quarter, I can chop three quarters of it and throw it away in a week and start again and do this process over and over and over again searching for a book and all this crap that I'm writing. And uh, I often compare it, uh, a metaphor would be you're you're standing on the edge of a jungle in Central America and you know that there's an ancient pyramid 
built by the Quiche Maya, you know, yeah. hundreds of years earlier. You have a machete and you want to find the pyramid. So you start hacking through the jungle with your machete and you hack 20 miles into the jungle in one direction. You don't find the pyramid. Then you hack in another direction. You don't find the pyramid. Then you hack in the third direction. You don't find the pyramid. And you're hacking all over the jungle, making these different trails, which would be different drafts of the book, trying to find the pyramid. And a lot of times, I never found the pyramid. And then every now and then, I would hack my way and find the pyramid. But it took a lot of chopping and a lot of um, struggle and adventure to try and find that hidden pyramid. And half the books I've written, I never found the pyramid. They're no good. Have you ever used that metaphor before about the pyramid in the uh, Central American jungle? I think maybe I've, I've in speeches or talks okay. or, you know, okay. groups of people, I might have mentioned that. But that seems like a, an accurate way of, sure. of uh, explaining how I work on it. Yeah. And, Interesting. Uh, of course, you go through a lot of adventures when you're hacking through the jungle. Sure. Even if you can't find the pyramid. Yeah. You might get bit by a bushmaster snake. Right. Or there's beautiful butterflies or whatever. Yeah. And I never threw anything away because I might come back to a discarded manuscript uh, 10 years later or 20 years later ah. and cannibalize one little chapter from it. Sure. That's, that I realized would fit in my current project. Interesting. And I've written books in the 1960s that I then put away in trunks and then pulled out 30 years later and started rewriting them. And a couple of those books, I actually spent another 10 years working on them and finally made them decent enough that I could publish them. So... What of, uh, let's say, nonfiction or fiction uh, are either one of those styles, uh, you know, easier for you? To write? Um, I don't think either style is easier to okay. write. It's um, when I start a book, I just plow through the first draft. Okay. Just 10 pages a day, 20 pages a day, whatever. Just to build the momentum to come up with a manuscript. Okay. You might say that what I'm doing is building clay, 
Then I spend the next 10 years working with the clay, trying to model it into something decent, you know. Sure. And that's the same with nonfiction or fiction. So I do a lot of research often, both for nonfiction and fiction, but often that doesn't help me that much. Sure, yeah. I certainly the uh, situations you've had with screenplays. There was uh, somewhat of a parallel of when Ken Kesey did the screenplay for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and then was basically he was uh, I guess you could use the word robbed of uh, by Hollywood uh, where they went ahead and got their own uh, screenplay writer and they discarded what uh, Kesey had done all the work that he had done and just uh I know that he refused to see the movie and never did see it, you know, and uh, Uh he's been, you know, passed on for over 20 years. But uh, uh, certainly uh, Larry McMurtry, you know, uh, some of his early work, uh, you know, like uh, Horseman Passed By and Leaving Cheyenne. Uh Uh-huh. you know, what was it, uh, I believe it was uh, Horseman Passed By was made into the movie HUD. Right. But, uh, interesting to read uh, writers' views of uh, what they've experienced with uh, writing screenplays and working with Hollywood and all. Well, uh, if you're going to work on films and you're going to make movies based on books, First thing you got to do is buy the book, then throw it away. Yeah. Then make a movie. A movie is a totally different art form than the book. Interesting. You refer to the book. You can use the book. You often try and base the film on the book, but you have to write. You have to put your mind in a totally different place and produce a totally different work of art. Sure, for, yeah. And um, so I remember when when I was working with Alan Pakula on The Sterile Cuckoo. Yeah. I didn't know anything about writing a movie. And I said, well, how do you write a r- movie, Alan? And he said, well, why don't you buy the, sc- the published screenplay of Horton Foote's script for To Kill a Mockingbird ah. and read that, and at least you'll know the form that it takes. And that's the only education I ever got about how to write a screenplay. Interesting. And I read Horton Foote's uh, script and I was stunned because To Kill a Mockingbird is a fairly long and complicated book. And that screenplay was 110 pages and most of it was air. You Interesting. Know, there was very little writing in it. 
And uh, Alan Pakula went on to direct Clute and All the President's Men. Yeah. And uh, Sophie's Choice and stuff. I mean, he really knew what he was doing. And um, I worked on about my I worked on about fifteen films over a twenty year period. Yeah. Uh, I never wrote a film uh, screenplay on spec speculation. Uh-huh. I wasn't interested in writing scripts. But I would get these phone calls from producers saying, are you available? In my book, I mentioned I got a phone call from a producer named Eddie Lewis who asked me to rewrite a movie for Costa Gavras, the uh, Greek-French director. And Costa Gavras was my hero because he'd made Z... Yeah. And State of Siege that yeah. I had seen. And uh, so I took a train out to Los Angeles and met Costa Gavras. And he had a movie that he was trying to get made, his first movie in America. And it was ultimately called Missing. And uh, I sat down and talked with Costa Gavras for... Uh, three days, I guess. Yeah. About the screenplay. And um, we both agreed that a problem with the script is that the characters really didn't mesh, you know, so that you believed in their relationships, the principal characters. Yeah. And they gave me three weeks during Christmas vacation to go home and rewrite the screenplay making the characters work in a in a better human way and I did that I didn't know what I was doing and apologized profusely when I sent the screen the rewritten script back yeah. to Hollywood and they just fell over backwards with joy. They got a green light. Wow. They got um, Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemon to be their principal actors. Yeah. And they immediately went on location in Mexico and made the movie. And it got four Academy Award nominations. And uh, that basically launched my accidental career in writing screenplays. Interesting. Because Costa Gavras worked on two more films with me. Neither of them got made. Then um, uh, Ridley Scott worked on a couple of films with me. They didn't get made. Um, uh, Louis Mal, French director, worked on one of my own books, The Magic Journey. That didn't get made. Uh, It's real cheap to get development bread to write a script, but it's very, very difficult to get millions of dollars to make a movie. Right. So I'm betting that 95% of the screenplays that get written do not get further developed. 
interesting. That would be my guess. Yeah. But I had this extraordinary weird luck that I would get a phone call and a producer or a director would ask if I was interested in working on their project. Yeah. And uh, I could choose yes or no. I wasn't interested in a Hollywood career. Yeah. So I would meet with the director sometimes or I would read a script. I say, no, the script is terrible. I don't want to work on that. Yeah. I, I was asked once by Carol Rice, uh, a wonderful uh, British uh, um, producer and director, to uh, rewrite a Harold Pinter script for um, The Handmaid's Tale. Interesting. And I, because uh, Harold Print Pinter had written this script and Carol wanted me to make it more North American. Yeah. Because the novel writer, Margaret Atwood, was from Canada. And so I read the book and I didn't like the book. Yeah. So I rejected. I said, no, I don't want to work on a screenplay. And they made the movie... Anyway, yeah, uh, Carol Rice didn't make it. Another uh, uh, director did, and the movie was a total failure back then. Yeah, got lousy reviews. Everybody forgot about it. Then, of course, years later, uh, they got back onto The Handmaid's Tale, turned it into a television series, and it became very popular. Blah, 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 blah. Sure, yeah. But I did that a lot. People would ask me if I wanted to work on something, and I would just say no. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't want to get, what do you call it, enmeshed in Hollywood. Sure. Hollywood really didn't interest me. Yeah. I didn't want to do networking. Yeah. And I didn't consider it my career. But Hollywood paid you. Yeah. Even if it was Writers Guild minimum. Yeah. Hollywood paid you uh, in a way that publishing never paid you at all. I mean. Interesting. So, and it gave me um, health coverage. Yeah. And my family health coverage. Yeah when I was working on a movie. Interesting. So. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly, uh, the missing is, I think, perhaps uh, one of the more interesting films, you know, that is supposed to take place. Well, it's the history behind the story that's, you know, of, of course, the... Uh, the Pinochet coup. Right. It was and, always my 9-11 because the coup in Chile that overthrew Salvador Allende was on September 11th, 1973. Wow. And I always considered that September, the real September 11th. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's... 
And it was done with the aid of the United States from sure. Kissinger and Nixon down to, you know, American personnel in Chile. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, so much of the uh, history of the United States and Latin America is uh, extremely spotty at best. And, you know... Uh, the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well... The United States has treated Latin America in the same way that Russia is now treating Ukraine. I mean, we supported, you know, half the dictators in the world. Sure. From Cuba to Dominican Republic to Guatemala to El Salvador to Chile to Panama. Yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, New Mexico is in many ways the most unique of all the uh, the states uh -huh. in this country. And then, of course, different areas of New Mexico, like down there where I live in the Gila, is its own uh, set of cultures. And right. then, of course... Upper Rio Grande Valley, up this way, very unique. Also, northwestern quarter of uh, New Mexico, yeah, very different. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, uh, I've driven from Gallup over here to Taos many times, and uh, certainly driving across eastern Navajo Reservation, it's, uh, I like to describe it as uh, driving miles and miles and miles of desert and right. looking off in the distance and, oh, there's a hogan and, and there's a sheeper and herd of sheep. And then you get to Cuba, New Mexico, and it's like somebody hits a, a light switch. Right. Then you go up towards uh, Guyana and over towards Coyote and, right. and that way. And it's like, my God, it's a different country. That's right. And I've even seen it, you know, where it's been drought-like on uh, over by Crown Point and uh -huh. uh, Torreon. And then you get up towards Guyana and it's like, you know, the grass is real green. They've been, you know, getting a lot more rain. And anyway, right. the cultures change dra yeah. drastically, like going east of the mountains. Uh, Colfax County and all is such a different uh, culture in many ways. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah, but uh, you've definitely, you know, you stuck with it here in Taos. I mean, you came here so many years ago in the late 60s or what, 68 was it? Or? I, 69, we came here. I first came here in 1957. Yeah. Because I worked for a farmer in Virginia named Goodwin Locke, who had a brother in Taos named Justin Locke. And I came out west on a Greyhound bus when I was 16 with a letter of introduction to Justin Locke, who lived in Llano Quemado in southern Taos. And I just spent a couple of weeks helping him 
mud his ha- remud his yeah. house and build a door and an adobe wall and then i went down to uh southeastern arizona to portal arizona yeah and worked at a research station and fought forest fires yeah with um chicano guys from rodeo new mexico yeah. and mexican nationals sure and i loved it yeah i just loved being in those mountains with those people yeah and so that's why I came back, you know, 11 years later or whatever it was. Interesting. Yeah. I love the Chiricahua Mountains also. Yeah. And I spent my 30th birthday there. Really? And then my 50th birthday, I, I climbed to the top of Portal Peak. No kidding. I thought I was going to end my life on a round number, 50. Really? But it was uh, definitely exciting up there. Really? Yeah. Took me all day to go from the base to the top and back down and over yeah. 15 miles round trip or something. Portal but, Peak. But uh, was that uh, where you did the work in the Chattercalas? Was that for the, uh, I know, Museum of Natural History? The Museum of Natural History in New York City has a research station. Yes. In Portal, Arizona. Yeah. And my grandfather was an ich- head ichthyologist at the American Museum in New York City. Right. The and he gave of... me a letter of introduction yeah. to the director of the research station in Portal, Arizona, asking if I could work for Roman Board or something. Yeah. And the director said yes. And then the same day that I arrived, the head forest ranger arrived uh, at the research station said he was looking for somebody who could chase down a smoke. A tree had been hit by lightning and yeah. they had observed that it was burning. And so the next thing I knew, I was heading across the mountains looking for a tree that was on fire with orders to chop it down. That's with very, another another guy was with me. Yeah, sounds very exciting and real adventure. It was very exciting, real adventure. It was a nightmare, but it was very funny and a lot of fun too. Sure, and, I, I remember reading that story in If Mountains Die. Right. Yeah, you yes. got a good memory. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think the. Of the half dozen books of yours that I've read, the one that uh, I find the most intriguing is uh, The Last Beautiful Days of Autumn. Uh-huh. And I was living here in Taos in the 80s when that was published. And uh, also the other, uh, another nonfiction book of yours where you talk about... Uh, Oh, the gentleman who was an artist and wandered around southern Utah uh, on the Mesa. Your uh, your book on the Mesa. Yeah. The, the, you you Ever, mentioned the artist wandering around. That I, was probably an introduction to uh, a Gibbs Smith book about... Uh, Everett Roos. Everett Roos, yeah. 
Well, I went up to you yeah. after you had read that excerpt out of that book, of your really? book, on the Mesa. It was just over here at the old, whatever it was, Main Street right. Bakery. And I said, John, I, I've i hiked all over southern Utah, and uh, this it sounds almost like what I've done, you know, this guy. And uh, you said, well... Give me your uh, post office box, and you sure enough, you sent me a copy of the book. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. And then, uh, definitely interesting uh, connection. I mean, there's uh, a lot of uh, eccentric people, a lot of interesting people have been attracted to the southwestern deserts of they America. Have. I always tell people that when I came back to New Mexico in 1969, I was working on a lot of political, anti-war, civil rights, justice issues in New York City. Yeah. But I couldn't live there anymore. And I also figured that New Mexico was as close as I could get to what was then called the Third World. Uh-huh without actually moving to Guatemala or El Salvador or Nicaragua. Yeah. And I was right. Absolutely. You know? Yes. So there were, there was extreme poverty and there was also much need for uh, organizations fighting for social justice and equality. Yeah. And, you know, all, all those things. I was uh, reading in your book about you were involved in the uh, Greenwich Village folk scene to some degree in the early 60s. And you also mentioned the old folk singer, Phil Oakes. Yeah. My brother loved Phil Oaks. Really? And actually got to see him perform. It was on a Channel 13 national educational television show that uh -huh. had Phil Oaks on Channel 13 back, really? back in 67, and my brother was in the small audience there. Really? Yeah. And then, of course, Phil Oaks uh, died quite young, he committed suicide when he was 35. Right. And he hung himself. Yay. Yeah. At well. his sister's house in uh, Long Island, I wow. guess. Yeah, certainly uh, his, uh, his songs uh, have a lot of anguish and a, a lot of uh, feeling in them. They were good songs. Yeah, definitely. Uh, right. I'm only 16, I got a ruptured spleen, and I always carry a purse. <laughs> I haven't thought of that in a couple of years or more. Wow. Yeah. No, I only, I spent four months uh, playing my guitar in little cafes on... Uh, Bleecker and McDougal Street. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, decided that that was the roughest business 
you could possibly be in in your life. <laughs> the most cutthroat, <laughs> cruel, mean, nasty yeah. business. And uh, anyway, I was so involved and I was working on five novels at a time. Yeah. Just trying to get one that worked. So I backed off of becoming a famous folk singer, you know. Yeah. Well, I think you made a good uh, choice in becoming a, you know, pursuing writing. And it's allowed you to uh, live here in New Mexico all these years in beautiful Taos County. Yeah, but if I had not been earning a living publishing books in New York City or writing on films for Los Angeles, I would not have been able to survive in Taos yeah. for five minutes. I don't know how people manage to do it. Yeah, It is so poor. It is so difficult to get decent jobs. Yeah. You know, it's it's even hard to get a job for minimum wage. Yeah. At Walmart or, or wherever. And uh, I have nothing but incredible respect for people who manage to somehow earn a living by living in... in uh, Taos or northern New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rough, rough road to hoe. Sure, yeah. I mean, you apparently have done it. Yes. Most of your life. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, and uh, a lot of hand to mouth. Yeah. I. Uh, you have spoken about. Uh, being up in the mountains, along with, you know, all the time you've spent down on the Rio Grande, uh, down at the river, but also uh, above the Ski Valley and specifically Lake Fork Peak. Yeah. And Lake Fork Peak, I, uh, it was one of the few peaks up that way that I had not climbed and I tried to climb it twice. And the first time was uh, trying to go up over Kachina Peak from the ski valley. And then I had to turn back from a little bit of acrophobia, fear of heights. Right. And then the second time I went up there, I went up uh, by way of Williams Lake. And I tried going to the Cirque on the north side or like northwest from Williams Lake and it was the wrong Cirque. So finally, the third time a few years later, maybe about 15 years ago or more, I finally made it to the top of Lake Fork Peak. And uh, and I know that it holds a uh, a warm place in your heart. Being Very. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I had, um, I almost died when I was 53 from, endocarditis, an infection, a bacterial infection inside my heart. And uh, I wound up having to have open heart surgery and um, spent about two years really fighting for my life. Yeah. And uh, then, and 
when I was undergoing this illness and open heart surgery, I um, took uh, antibiotics called gentamicin, six IV bags a day for three and a half weeks or whatever. And they, um, the side effect of gentamicin is it destroys the vestibular reflex in your inner ear. Huh. So you wind up with no balance. Wow. And prior to that, I, you know, I, I um, played ice hockey on leagues in Albuquerque. I played tennis four or five times a week with a buddy of mine. I fished the Rio Grande by hopping on boulders yeah. back and forth across the river, you know, fly fishing for sure. trout. I was really coordinated. And all of a sudden, I had absolutely no equilibrium at all. I had no balance. and But I was used to just exercising and, and hiking and yeah. all that kind of stuff and being coordinated and fishing and stuff. And so I said, what can I do? And I said, well, if I have two <coughs> hiking poles, I can walk, you know, without falling down. <coughs> and that was in my mid-50s. And I decided, okay, I have to see, first of all, whether my heart can actually climb yeah. at all after all this, these problems and open heart surgery and yeah. replacing a valve, etc. And so I said, okay, let's see if I can make it to Williams Lake. And I climbed up and I made it to Williams Lake. And I said, wow. And then I got real cocky and I said, let's see if I can climb Wheeler Peak. And I got halfway up Wheeler Peak, went into horrendous atrial fibrillation, scrambled back down to the lake and put my lay down and put my feet up against a rock or a tree, got myself out of atrial fibrillation. And then I said, I looked at a map, you know, and I said, well, looks like it might not be quite so steep going to Lake Fork Peak. And so I started trying, to, I, there were no trails, and I started trying to get to Lake Fork Peak, where there, there was a miner's trail yeah. over a rock pile. And uh, if you went to the North Cirque of Lake Fork Peak, you could see where they had mines. There were tailings in the North Cirque. The North Cirque was pretty steep to get up to a saddle between Kachina Peak and Lake Fork Peak, and then you could climb over boulders to Lake Fork Peak. But it took me many tries to figure out, okay, how do I do this? What's the best way? And then uh, I was on Lake Fork Peak once, and I went south. Uh, and saw that maybe in the South Peak, the South Cirque, it was an, a, a more possible route. Yeah. 
And so then I started trying to find, there's no trails, yeah. a route up the South Cirque. And uh, it took me a number of times to figure that out. Yeah. But I figured it out. And it's a tough hike, but it's a beautiful hike. Yeah. You go through several uh, subalpine meadows. You go through a wonderful marshy area. There's little rivulets and ojitos and water yeah. just everywhere. And big corn lilies and the osha grows to your chest. And there's there's um, lots of monkshood and... and uh, other, you know, big flowers and little flowers in marshy areas yeah. up there. And I began climbing Lake Fork Peak, you know, once a week, and then twice a week or something like yeah. that. And um, finally, when I was about 60, 61, I... Uh, I was doing a book tour. It's the last book tour I ever did in in 2001. Yeah. Uh, where I was flying to different cities and stuff. And uh, my last stop on the book tour was supposed to be Toronto, Canada for a big conference of international writers. And I... Um, uh, 9-11 happened, you know, on September yeah. 11th. And that really spooked everybody, obviously. And on October 10th, George Bush invaded Afghanistan. He started bombing Afghanistan. And I said, I'm not getting in an airplane to fly across international borders yeah, with with this atmosphere going on. Sure. And it's the first time I think I ever canceled something I committed to. I called yeah. up to people in Toronto and I just said, I'm sorry, but I've, I'm not going to come. I'm yeah. not going to do it. And the meeting in Toronto started on October 16th. 2001 and instead I climbed Lake Fork Peak that day interesting and uh, and I remember seeing a, uh, a herd of a little band of ewes uh, bighorn sheep yeah. ewes grazing sort of off the top of Lake Fork Peak and I climbed Lake Fork Peak on the 16th, the 17th, the 19th, the 22nd, the 26th, the wow. 28th, you know, yeah. the, the 31st, the uh, 3rd day in November, the 5th day in November, the 8th day in November. And I remember finally on November 11th, I got stopped by a blizzard. Wow. <laughs> and that completely changed my life to yeah. where I just said, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to hike in the high mountains. 
I love it. I love the yeah. tundra. I love the bighorn sheep. I loved learning the botany. And from that moment on, from age 61 to about age 75 or 76, I just, three times a week, I would climb above tree line in either that basin, that Wheeler Peak, yeah. Williams Lake Basin, but always to the west. And in 10 years, I think I only met six people Yeah, in that area. Nobody goes there. Yeah. Nobody goes around that bowl. You know, they all go to Williams Lake and then climb Wheeler Peak. Sure. Because uh, it's the tallest mountain in New yeah. Mexico. And I think that that decayed and, and, and a quarter or something was possibly the happiest time of my life. Wow. And in the winter, I would snowshoe. Yeah. I learned how to snowshoe when I was 60 years old. That's awesome. And I would go snowshoeing over to Gold Hill or snowshoeing up to uh, uh, Fraser Mountain yeah. or snowshoeing up to, up to Williams Lake and then west. Yeah. Although I was very very conscious about avalanches sure. and stuff. And, uh, but it was just wonderful. I'd, I'd take 50 trips during the winter. Wow. On snowshoes and just bushwhack through the forest. Yeah. Up at 11,000 feet and stuff. And never been happier in my life. Wow. And never worked harder in my life. Yeah. Either. You know, it, it's hard work to snowshoe, but but I loved it when when uh, it would be twenty below zero and there'd be a blizzard, and I'd be up there tromping around. Yeah. Uh, I had a real warm coat, you know. I mean, I really learned that you sweat your butt off right. when you're going up, but the minute you stop. Set right. up your tripod to look at bighorn sheep or something. You better put that coat back on and everything because you can get hypothermia really quickly. Sure. But God, I loved I loved being alone and just doing that. Yeah. And I did that from October 16th, 2001. And the last time I climbed Lake Fork Peak, I think, was... October 3rd in in um, 2009. Interesting. But then I, I kept, I would keep climbing up to 12,000 feet Yeah. into the 210s and 11s and 12s and stuff. Sure. And little by little I'd lowered down until finally in my late 70s just climbing to Williams Lake was a big thrill. Yeah. You know? Wow, that's very impressive. But just um, losing my inner ears and all my coordination yeah. to play sports. And, and prior to that, I would fish the Rio Grande 
you know, three every day for three months in a row. Yeah. In September and October, November, when it and and uh, the great good fortune of my life is that I could do that these things every day. Yeah. Come out of the mountains or out of the gorge by dark and get home, eat a little supper, then work for eight hours writing, writing working on books until five or six in the morning. Yeah. And then I'd crash and wake up again next day at noon or one o'clock. Yeah. Just make a sandwich and a beer yeah. in a cooler. You know, get pack my shotgun if it was September and go grouse hunting. Yeah. In Unit 49 and the little Rio Grande, the Pot Creek, the Rio Grande de Rancho. Yeah. All over. I just bushwhacked all over that area and knew all the old logging roads and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I really had fun. That's fascinating. You know, there's a. Uh an amazing number of uh, high lakes, or I guess in uh, geological terms, they call a tarn, T-A-R-N. There are tarns. They, they don't have any springs. They're made out of snow and rain. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a... There's my favorite place in New Mexico is a tarn at 12,000 feet. I'll show you a picture. To me, this is the most beautiful place in New Mexico. This is Lake Fork Peak. Oh, yeah. This is Catherine Overlook. You go south from Lake Fork Peak here. You're right, and right below you is uh, Catherine Lake on Indian land. Yeah. That's, that's a little tarn under Lake Fork Peak. That's fantastic. Lake Fork Peak is just right over here. Yeah. Sort of. And that little tarn is just, sometimes it's really full. Sometimes it's totally empty. That's fantastic. This is Wheeler Peak. And this is Simpson Peak. This is oh, old Mike. Mike, and this I call Mount Kimmel because they call it no name. And it used to be you could go over this saddle to, um, you know, go up to Williams Lake, go over the saddle to Bear Lake because Bear Lake was in an appendix of the Wheeler Peak Wilderness. Interesting. On Indian land. Yeah. And then the Indians. Here, I'll show you another picture of the... I just loved this country. And I loved the bighorns too. Yeah. The bighorns were really... Majestic. They were majestic and I'd give them names and stuff. Uh -huh. Here's two, two versions of the tarn. That's really beautiful. It's almost all dried up. When it dries up, all the rocks get... Uh, iron oxide or something ah. in them. But that's my favorite place, that, that area, those, that boulder field. And it's right at 12,000 feet. It's wow. right at the wind. 
the, yeah. the wind line. I mean the tree line. Wow. All, all the trees are like Krumholz trees. Yeah. Pretty fantastic. And Those are my best friends, Andres Martinez and Pacomio Mondragon. Huh. And that's over by the Pataka Arroyo. Pacomio okay. had his sheep camp over there. Over by Kiowa Mountain and all? Over by Tres Orejas now. Yeah. On the west side of Tres Orejas. There was a lot of water that year in the Pataka Arroyo. Well, you've seen a lot of uh, growth here over all the years you've lived in Taos County. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, growth isn't always a good thing. But Growth. Uh, growth will destroy the planet, ultimately. I, because we have an economic system based on the exploitation of infinite resources. I mean, the infinite exploitation of finite resources. Yeah. And that's why we have climate change. Yeah. And the world economy is a capitalist economy predicated on planned obsolescence, conspicuous consumption, yeah. and the overuse of, you know, the infinite use of finite resources. And growth is the mantra of the capitalists that control the planet, from Jeff Bezos to Deutsche Bank or J.P. Morgan Chase or sure. Citicorp, etc. And they're not going to change it very soon, I don't think. Donald Trump is one of the sure. main provocateurs, etc., of this. Oh, yeah. And um, so it's funny, I was reading um, Murray Bookchin last night um, uh, basically about about this about his ideas about social ecology and stuff and uh, I don't in uh, in my book I don't uh, in I got mine I don't overly emphasize my hatred of the capitalist system. Sure. And I don't blather on uh, about, you know, doomsday and how we are destroying the planet. Sure. Et cetera. But I do try every now and then to, you know, mention Absolutely. A bit about about I, that, which has toward the end of the book, I quoted just a paragraph from from a book called "The Case for the Green New Deal" by Ann Pettifor. Yeah, and uh, it's just a single paragraph that that says it all. I've, you know, 
dealt with that belief since I was about 24 years old. When I, I got out of college and I went to Guatemala and that changed me completely. And I became very anti-war and um, for years just called myself a Marxist-Leninist because uh, I just wanted to get that in the newspapers, you know, or I call myself a communist, just or just just to get a newspaper to quote something, yeah, about another system, you know. Sure. I mean, and uh, it's um, when I came to New Mexico, there were three and a half billion people on the planet. Yeah. And now there are almost 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, and the planet can't take it. Nor can the human community, I don't think. Yeah. So... so it's as if many people around the world are are not not only uh, watching but are part of a uh, massive train wreck yeah then the train wreck is being created by the Jeff Bezos and Carlos Slim and people yeah. like that and uh, two thirds of the planet lives on less than two dollars a day Right. I mean, yeah. we use cell phones and, and computers that are full of cobalt and dark matter that is mined, much of it is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is one of the poorest countries on the planet. The people mining the stuff that makes our technology work are lucky to get paid a dollar a day. Wow. And millions have been killed in these separate personal civil wars in the Democratic Republic of Congo for control of the cobalt and other dark matter yeah. materials sure. that the Western world consumes. Yeah voraciously yeah and uh, you know that that sort of inequality is just unacceptable yeah that kind of wealth inequality is just unacceptable wow yeah blah 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 don't get me started. Yeah. Just don't get me started. Well, let's go back to bighorn sheep and yeah, and the tarns up in the high country. There was a news article in Albuquerque Journal about 20 years ago, speaking of wildlife, and it was about a, a stray moose that had come down from Colorado, uh -huh. and I think it was up here. Uh, maybe in the Latiers. Yeah, I, th I think I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I thought that, well, that's that's pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, 
I've seen plenty of moose up in Montana, but uh, sure. you know, one in New Mexico is uh, pretty uh, unusual. Pretty rare. Yeah, and then uh, of course uh, the last of the grizzlies of the Southwest. Uh, I believe some of the last of the Gila grizzly, the last known grizzly down in the Gila, was maybe killed in late. 1920s or something like that and then of course there was one in the San Juan Mountains right Dave Peterson wrote a book about it and so did Doug Peacock right 1979 yeah I think 1979 yeah right it was uh, wandered down right a a grizzly in in New Mexico yeah uh, in Colorado yeah yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. Certainly uh, down in the Gila, I have yet to see a Gila monster, and they are in the area where I live. At least the uh, furthest up river, any Gila monsters have ever been seen are about a mile down river from where I live. Oh really? I live at just under five thousand feet. Oh. But then where the Gila River goes down through the middle box towards the Arizona state uh-huh. line, uh, an area called Red Rock, mm-hmm. there's apparently quite a few uh, Gila monsters. But I think, I mean, I've spent a lot of time wandering around the desert, but I, I guess not quite enough time. I've spent an awful lot of time wandering around the mountains. Yeah. The gorge, the high country, the mountains in southeast of town. And I've never seen a mountain lion. Ah. You know, I've seen mountain lion scat, but I've never seen a mountain lion. I've seen bobcats, and I've seen deer, and I've seen lots of bears, but I've never seen a mountain lion, which always astonishes me, given how much time I've spent walking around. You can count on that there was many a mountain lion that, you know, observed you. Probably, yeah. Although I am amazed that they they put bighorn sheep into the Wheeler Wilderness in 1993, I think. Huh. And the sheep there were not predators of the bighorns in in the Wheeler Wilderness. Yeah. So it, they multiplied, and they would constantly have to be trapped yeah. and put in other places. Finally, they put a lot in the Rio Grande Gorge, uh, and they have really um, uh, had success in the Rio Grande Gorge to the extent that a couple of years ago, they had to shoot something like 37 wow. sheep that had wandered south, yeah. you know, toward Embudo and toward oh, yeah. an area where they would meet domestic sheep. Oh, yeah. And one domestic sheep can wipe out a bighorn herd in ah. 10 minutes. Wow. Because the bighorns have no... Um, Nothing to counter, yeah. Uh, the, the 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 bacteria from 
from domestic sheep. Sure. Which doesn't hurt the domestic sheep. Yeah. But would kill the, it's like smallpox killing Native Americans when oh. Europeans arrive. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So. Wow. God. Well, there's probably some younger writers, you know, coming up in the world here, right here in New Mexico, with uh, endless, you know, subject matter and whatnot. And uh, what kind of advice would you give a, a young young writer starting out? The same advice I'd give any writer or anybody starting out is just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Just, I mean, write. Just write every day. Read books. Go to movies. Yeah. Write down what you hear people say in, yeah. in the cafe when you're having your coffee. Sure. You know, just, just... Just do it, that's all. Yeah. And uh, just try and make yourself have the fanaticism and the obsession to do it. Yeah. That's all I can think of is, 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 is um, for some reason, since I was a kid, I had this obsession to work at it, and it's just what I did. But yeah. what I did was, you know, write every night yeah. for at least eight hours for seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, for 57 or 58 years now. Yeah. And I told myself when I was 23 that that's what I was going to do and that I had to do it for at least 40 years to know if I could do it. Yeah. And so that even though I kept writing bad books, that I just would keep doing it until I learned how to write a decent book. You know, of all your books that you've written, do you have one or two that really you feel the best about? The answer to that, of course, is always the next one I'm going to okay. write. <laughs> but I feel I f I feel good about the Magic Journey. The Magic uh -huh. Journey is a novel that. I tried very much to put everything but the kitchen sink in and yeah. also describe how capitalism works in the second half of the 20th century and how it affects people and what poverty is really like. You know, the Milagro Beanfield War is a book about essentially trying to commit cultural genocide against a race of people by taking over their town, etc. The, but it's so humorous 
uh, lots of people don't get the point. I yeah. Mean, they, they, they just like it because it's funny. The Magic Journey has humor in it, but it's not that funny. Yeah. No, The Magic Journey is really serious. And I really, really worked hard to, to write that book, and I'm proud of it. Although it's much harder for people to read. It's not very popular. Yeah. But many, many political activists whom I really respect have, you know, written me letters or called me or talked to me about how that book really changed their lives. And uh, otherwise, I like um, uh, a little book I wrote. I always wanted to write the perfect little book. Yeah. And one of them is uh, An Elegy for September, which is a very short book. Yeah. It's just about a, a love affair between 49-year-old guy and a 19-year-old girl. Yeah. And they just, they walk around the mountains. They walk around the sagebrush plain. They walk yeah. on the Rio Grande. I wanted to write about September. And I kept writing drafts of it that were read like, um, I don't know, National Geographic describing something. And finally I said, well, why don't you try writing it as a novel? Yeah. To make it just more interesting, but still have it yeah. just about September. You know? So I really, I like that book. I think that's almost a perfect little book. Wow. And I wrote a book about my mother who died when I was two. Yeah. Called Goodbye Monique. I self-published it. Interesting. And I really like that book. And it's just like a little novella. And uh, it's just about the four years that my parents had together. Yeah. They got married in 1938, and she died in 1942. Yeah. When she was 27. Wow. And uh, there's one other book that I really like that nobody has ever read, probably. It's called The Empanada Brotherhood. It's about being very young in New York City, wanting to be a writer. And it's about hanging out at an empanada stand and um, just being friends with a bunch of Argentines. Yeah. And uh, it's also about a guy who falls in love with... A, Young, a young guy who falls in love with a young woman <coughs> who wants to be a flamenco dancer. <coughs> and she's from Argentina. And so to me, the book is about, it's about being young in New York City, wanting to be an artist, about falling in love and having an unrequited love. This yeah. guy's too shy wow. to ever get together with this woman. But I love the book. It, it, it's very short, very short chapters. Yeah. And I wrote the first drafts in the 1960s. 
66 and 67. Yeah. And then put the book in a trunk for 30 years, took it out of the trunk in 1997, and then spent 10 years rewriting it, draft after draft, trying to recreate this atmosphere that that I sort of experienced when I was 22 years old. And I didn't keep a journal during that time. Interesting. You know? So yeah. I had to really force my imagination yeah. to try and recreate it. And uh, I love that book. And yeah. a few people who read it just say, nothing happens. And I can't believe that they say that, you know, oh. because... It, the narrator never explains what he's seeing. Yeah. He just, I mean, he never explains what he feels or what he thinks with what he's seeing. He's sort of too shy for that. He just describes the action happening yeah. in front of his eyes. Yet underneath, he has this enormous desire, you know, to become an artist, to become a writer. And he loves this woman whom he can't approach. Ah, you know. Sure. So, and it's also just about being real young in New York City. Yeah. You know, before you've accomplished anything or. Yeah. But you have so much yearning. Sure. So. Yeah, those are probably my favorite books. Interesting. You know. Interesting. Yeah, I would like to read those for sure. And uh, Yeah, they're they're easy. They're they're um I can give you know, I never give books to people. You know, you don't want to be an artist who gives a painting to a friend. The friend hates the painting but has to put it on the wall every time the artist visits, oh. you know, that kind of... Yeah. So I don't like to impose... I understand. ...and people, but... Yeah. No, I'll... Uh, if you're interested, I can give you uh, a couple of those. I would love yeah. that. I'd be honored. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, do you have any other uh, thoughts at this time, you know, to... I know we could probably talk half the night or whatever. I'm right. very interested. Uh, uh, certainly Taos has changed dramatically, and I never saw Taos until 1979, uh -huh. but I was absolutely intrigued by it. It was November, I believe, of 79, and I was coming across the Gorge Bridge, and a full moon was coming up over the mountains, and it uh -huh. was a Saturday, and uh, that was the same night that I met Philip Reyna oh, really? from the Pueblo and, and Alfred Concha, and really? then at the next table was Pepe Rochon. Oh, really? And so uh, it was an interesting uh, meeting. And I very much became intrigued with Taos and 
uh, you know, at that time, late 70s, early 80s, I was still living in Montana. But like I say, I wanted to uh, experience more. And New Mexico has really uh, been very gratifying as far as, uh, you know, all the uh, many different kinds of people here in the different areas of the state, fifth right. largest state. And, you know, it's a fascinating area and uh, state. And, and coming up here to Taos today was uh, certainly, well... Well, you're going to go to Lee, ben Lee Bentley's Lee Bentley's memorial, memorial right? tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. did not know him. Yeah, Lee uh, was a very gracious man and very uh, kind and uh, I met him at, I believe, that's right, he gave me a ride. I was hitchhiking out of Seiko, headed to the Pueblo, and he was going to the Pueblo, and it was for a winter dance, and uh, really? and we hit it off. That would have been in 82. Really? And uh, so every year, I'd or every time I'd come up to Taos, I'd visit with, with Lee, and then uh, he'd set up his small teepee at the... Uh, house powwow and i'd camp out there oh, really? and set my lodge up sometimes and, really uh, yeah just uh you know met a lot of very fascinating people uh that way but uh lee was a genuine uh kind soul you know even though uh you know we didn't uh agree on everything and well who does but Nobody. uh yeah. No, Lee was a very, very uh, kind man, and I uh, got an an email from him in March saying that uh, he was in hospice and that he'd really like to see me a last time, and, really? and so I made a point of, uh, I was over in Gallup doing radio work, and then I took the back roads, Crown Point in Cuba, and, and that way and came over and I uh, visited with them there for a couple days and it was quite a last uh, visit. Mm -hmm. And he uh, gave me a box of uh, his, gave me all his Frank Waters books. Oh, really? And so I've read many of Frank's books, but the one that I had not read yet was The Man Who Killed the Deer and I finally read it uh -huh. back in May. Really, and it, it, you know, there's some romanticism in that writing style of Frank's, but uh, that book, really, I it was, I could see the uh, aspen leaves turning, I could smell the smells of the forest right. in the fall time. I could, you know, I could visualize everything in the book, other than maybe. Uh, you know, I wasn't alive in the 1930s and what right, uh, right. Taos County looked like back then. But it was a very, very beautiful book. I it was is. surprised. I was, uh, you know, yeah. it it read like a, uh, a, you know, like looking at a, a masterpiece painting uh -huh. or something. It, it had that uh, old feeling like that. No, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, some of those old writers, uh, I have a hard time getting through 
G.H. Lawrence's books, but uh, I may tr try to uh, read what the woman who wrote away and uh, I've read his short stories with greater success. Yeah, I've never read, I've never been able to read D.H. Lawrence. It's yeah, funny. kind of tedious reading. But, is you know, this is tedious reading, Herman Hesse. Yeah. And I've never read uh, The Brothers Karamazov. I've never read War and Peace. I've yeah. never read, I've read a lot of Charles Dickens, but, you Interesting. Know, there are, there are many gaps in my <laughs> You mentioned War and Peace, and what's interesting is, now, I've never read any of his books, but it was 50 years ago to the week that my mom passed on back in Connecticut. Really? And she was reading War and Peace, or had it with her. She she was a writer. She never published, but she uh, really? used to go to a writer's workshop with Martha Foley, who wrote, she, Martha mm -hmm. edited... 10 best short stories right. of 1958, stuff right. like that. And right. I knew Martha, and, uh, you know, I was a kid. Sure. But, yeah, uh, my father published a trade magazine on baking. Really? In New York City called Baker's Weekly. Really? And so, yes. And so I had the influences in my life and my mom read to me a lot and I really thank you know my parents for having you know exposed me to uh to reading lots of books and uh yeah it's uh I hardly ever well I don't own a television I mean I probably spend too much time you know on my phone internet but I uh been making a point of uh reading as many books as possible, along with all the hiking I still do. Really? Yeah. So, no, I, I read a lot all the time, but I can't hike anymore. Yeah. So that's too bad. But, you know, we get old. Yes. And, and things change. Things change, I yeah. I was going to say, you know, people ask me, how has Taos changed since you've been here? And I said, you know, it's changed like the world has changed. Yes. It's it's no different in Taos than it is in New York or down in Gila or yeah. Mexico City or sure. Mumbai or, uh, you know, Helena, Montana or right. Missoula or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Everything changes. Yeah. It always, it's always changing. Yes. We're, oh, every day we change. Yeah. Every day we shed certain skin and get new skin. Sure. Every day our bones change a little bit, get more brittle. Yeah. You know, and uh, I am not the person I used to be when I was 25. <laughs> oh, my God, I've changed. Yeah. You know? Jeepers. When I was 50, I wasn't the person I was when I was 25. Yeah. Gee, I changed. So one, expect, one expects change. Yes. To, to just try and hang on to, to, your, to your blessing doesn't mean that 
that you get to do it all the time. Yeah. Or that other people want to hang on to it. Sure. You know, and yeah. I'm not going to be a... Uh, I, I told myself when I was 23 that I would never let myself become a cynical old man. Oh. You know, and uh, so I haven't. I yeah. Mean, I'm... I'm horrified by what we're doing to the planet yeah. and what, what's happening, et cetera. But, you know, I was born in 1940. Yeah. And the first five years of my life, 60 million people were murdered worldwide. Sure. Six million of them were burned deliberately for being Jews by Hitler. Yeah. All the western cities and southeastern cities were flattened with bombing and it all ended with the atomic bombs yeah. while I was five. Now you can't tell me that wasn't a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's like Sure. Et cetera, et cetera, through the Vietnam War and Yeah. You know, all our all our struggles. And yeah. uh Life is a struggle for everything that lives, and that's the way it is. Yeah. And uh, our problem is we live in a in a culture that makes us consume by convincing us that we can find security by consuming, yeah. by buying insurance, by buying a car, by... Yeah. getting the right kind of gas in our house and all that kind of sure. shit. And there's no such thing as security. Most wildlife, what was I looking at? Something like sparrowhawks, kestrels, 95% of them die the first year of their lives. Huh. I saw a documentary last night or the night before on Cuba and it showed the little turtles being born yeah. and crawling over the sand to get to the ocean. Yeah. And uh, it did explain that one out of a thousand of these turtles will reach adulthood. Whoa. You know. Yeah. And there were raptors coming down and grabbing the little turtles while they wow. were running toward the ocean. Yeah. And that's that's life. Yeah. And that's the way life is. Yeah. So we're lucky. We, we yes. we've we've lived, you know, extended lives and yeah. uh we've been able to walk everywhere and yes. hike and yeah. And uh but unable to find Gila monsters. Ah <laughs> I'm still on the quest. Still on the quest. Yeah. Well, John, I very much appreciate you taking time. No, I appreciate you, know. you taking time. Well, thank you again. That's a lot of jabber. There's not. <laughs> <laughs>